Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right. I think it's time for us to get started. Um, I have a bunch of stuff that I'd like to try to cover tonight, and as usual, I have no idea if I'm going to have enough material or too much material. So I want to go ahead and get started, because I'd rather get done early than run late, because tonight's the last night that I'm teaching. We've been talking about fortifying our faith. Mark asked me to speak about faith and science, and we spent the last couple weeks talking specifically about some atheistic arguments, um, some general stuff about science itself, using some examples out of the the flu-worn debates um, from the 70s. And I had mentioned last week that I was kind of wanting to talk about um, a problem I've heard posed in the social sciences that has been identified by a lot of psychologists, generally kind of referred to as the God-shaped hole in the human heart, that from an evolutionary point of view doesn't really make any sense to exist there, right? It seems to imply things that don't necessarily make any sense. I've changed my mind. Um, because before I could get to that, there's some other stuff I wanted to talk about, because what I realized was to talk about that, we had to spend an awful lot of time talking about psychologists and the social sciences. And what we've talked to up to this point dealt far more with what's generally referred to as the natural sciences. You know, the stuff that we think of, physics, chemistry, um, things you can touch and go do an experiment and build it and do it again. And there's an interesting phenomenon that's been going on for about the last 10 or 12 years in the social sciences. Psychology has been impacted by it huge. This exists also in things like medicine, and it exists in other science disciplines as well. Um, but it's not something you necessarily hear about in the mainstream media a lot. And given, like Glenn spoke about a couple Sunday nights ago, some of these social things that are being thrown in our face supposedly is being backed by science, I think it's important as Christians that we understand it. And my goal is not to throw psychology under the bus as a worthless discipline, but to recognize some of the limitations and some of the problems so that we can ask informed questions, which should. As Christians, I'm not anti-science. I'm an engineer, for crying out loud. I can't go do my job without science for what I'm supposed to do. But that doesn't mean that I blindly accept things just because somebody slaps in the name of science on it. And it means that we should be willing to ask critical questions and understand more. And when we see something that gets thrown up in our face, or what usually shows up like this great headline... It should kind of be one of those things that's a way marker on the road, and you kind of go, oh, that's interesting. There was a little field over there. Okay, that's interesting. But until I see a whole bunch of those or build a bigger picture, I don't really know what that means. And I think what you're going to see with some of the stuff we're going to look at tonight, we live in a world where people see one tiny little piece, and they want to draw huge conclusions and completely restructure society around it. It's probably a really bad idea in any discipline of science especially in the social sciences. For example, this morning, I was already thinking about this. I'd kind of gotten most of my notes put together last night. And I picked up my phone, and as I tend to do as I'm drinking coffee, I kind of flipped through the news feed, right? And just kind of looked at it. And a couple, I'm sure I had been, wait, primed to think about this. But a couple of them jumped out at me because what I've been looking at. One was an NBC article that jumped right out. A psychotherapist shares the three exercises she uses every day to stop obsessing about, I didn't even click to read the rest of it. But there it was. The psychotherapist, here's the three things every day. We're going we're to call on psychology to tell us how we need to go solve 
whatever this problem is. Consumer Reports in my newsfeed had an article, Science-Backed Secrets to Boosting Your Brain Power. Right? Think about it. How many articles have you seen that are stuff like this? It ends up in a newsfeed, but they're lifestyle. They're not really news. They're something else. They take some little tidbit from some article and they try to make it because they're looking for content. Everybody wants stuff to put on their website. They want stuff for you to go read. Some other website called Real Simple. I don't know exactly what it is, but it showed up in the feed with everything else. That's the other reason is you have all these ideas. You have no idea how you can judge them as far as quality because they're all listed right there next to each other. These healthy habits will make you feel happier. Okay. Well, I'm pretty sure what makes Keith happy doesn't necessarily make me happy. I can look at a schematic and be happy. I'm pretty sure Keith would not enjoy that. Keith can sit down and play a guitar that would frustrate me. Right? So there's a lot of subjective terms things. So what I want to talk about, I'm going to use a couple of articles just because I really like the way the author wrote it. All right? I'm going to use two articles predominantly. That came from a website called Vox. If you, have you ever seen the Media V, right? The like chart that shows like where different media people are on the whole, how fact-based are, how opinion-based are they, how much do they just fall off the deep end and say nothing but lies, and then they're kind of like whether they lean left or lean right, and it usually kind of looks more or less like a V. Have you all ever seen that chart? I started to bring it, but it's only licensed for social media, and I didn't want to pay the $14.99. But the, the interesting thing about it is when you get down to the category at the very bottom that basically is quackpots and conspiracy theorists, they only exist on the right side of that chart. There's none in that same category on the left. So I think you could take this whole chart and kind of roll it a little bit, and you'd probably come a little closer. Those stalwarts like NPR that we claim are exactly in the middle, like Reuters News Service that we claim are exactly in the probably a little over further on that chart to the left than anybody wants to admit. But I did go look at it because I wanted to go Vox. I'd heard it. I'd read articles from them. I'm like, where do they fall on the spectrum? Eh, they're somewhere between like... They're a little more fact-based than where they rate CNN. They're definitely not quite up there with NPR. But I thought, hey, I, I read articles from all kinds of places all over the time, right? My goal is you should be able to read an article you don't agree with and it not make you mad. Okay? It's, it's just an article. You should be able to read it and say, well, that's an interesting viewpoint. I don't agree with that. But it shouldn't cause actual anger. And so I looked at it, and what I really liked was it was a very honest assessment and I like the guy's quotes. He went to multiple sources, and I like the way he wrote about it. So the article I want to use is from, the first one is from 2018 by a guy named Brian Resnick. And the title of it was, More Social Science Studies Just Failed to Replicate. Here's why this is good. Now, clearly, he's putting a spin on this because their goal is, well, if we find out we have a problem and we fix it, then everything's better, right? My argument is a little more of the, let's realize how bad this problem really is. Clearly, it's going to get better when we fix it. There's not quite as much acknowledging how bad some of this is, in my opinion. It starts like this. One of the cornerstone principles of science is replication. This is the idea that experiments need to be repeated to find out if the results will be consistent. The fact, um, in, uh, the fact that an experiment can be replicated is how we know the results contain a nugget of truth. Without replication, we can't be sure. For the past several years, social scientists have been deeply worried about the, repli the replicatability of their findings. Incredibly, influential textbook findings in psychology, like the ego depletion theory of willpower 
or the marshmallow test have been bending or breaking under rigorous retest. And the scientists have learned that they have, uh, the scientists have learned that what they used to consider commonplace methodical practices were really just recipes to generate false positives. This period has been called the replication crisis. And the reason I find this so interesting is because, I don't know if any of y'all know who uh, Jordan Peterson is. He talks about this at length. He's a pretty smart guy. He's considered a a conservative right-wing quackpot by most of his colleagues because he's a psychologist that doesn't instantly go all the way to the other side. And he kind of came to fame when he um, started speaking out in Canada because they were putting in place a compelled speech law that said, James, if you don't use my preferred pronouns, you have committed a crime and should be held accountable. It's compelled speech. His argument was never in the history of English common law has this ever been acceptable to compel speech from someone else. He didn't say that he wasn't going to use that if he was having a session. I mean, he was a clinical psychologist. He goes, if I'm talking to somebody, he goes, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying I think it's wrong for the government to compel my speech. The man got drug all over the coals. And you know what? This is a guy that had been putting all of his lectures online for 20-something years at the University of Toronto and Harvard, where he was teaching. Somehow nobody's ever managed to take him down because everything he says actually makes sense and it's well thought out. And he's a... um, In my opinion, he's a very smart thinker. Not quite a Christian, but he's got some interesting theories on God, too. Anyway, so let's jump to another article, because we just talked about something that was kind of interesting. This whole willpower thing is one of these tests that starts falling apart. So now I want to jump to another article by the same author. I'm making words up. Brian Resnick, from two years earlier, in March of 2016, also published in Vox, that's where this guy writes, entitled, Why Psychology's what psychology's crisis means for the future of science. And he's going to start by talking a little bit about this idea, this, this, uh, this willpower thing. So in, 1989, excuse me, in 1998, psychologists found evidence of a tantalizing theory. We have a finite mental store of energy for self-control and decision-making. Resisting temptation or making tough decisions saps this energy over time. Willpower is like a muscle, the argument goes. When it's tired, we lose focus. We give in to temptation, and we make shoddy decisions that hurt us later. The original 1998 experiment used chocolate chip cookies, radishes, and an impossible quiz to elegantly illustrate this. Participants who were told to eat the radishes and resist the cookies gave up on the impossible quiz faster than the participants that were allowed to just eat the cookies or radishes, whichever one they wanted, and work on the puzzle right? Over the years, this theory has been tested in hundreds of peer-reviewed studies with countless stand-ins for the chocolate, the radishes, the quiz. Scientists have shown how diminished willpower can affect our ability to hold on to a hand grip, uh, sap our motivation to help another person who's in need, and even negatively impact athletic performance, all right? This is a huge body of research that has helped ego depletion, as psychologists call it, and its offshoot, which I bet you've heard of, called decision fatigue, become the basis for best-selling books, TED Talks, and countless life hacks. In an age where temptation and decisions pummel us at warp speed, it's become an empowering concept. If we know how the system works, we can game it. I don't know if you guys realize this, but kind of famously, President Obama 
would not pick out his own suits for fear that that was wasting willpower and decision-making capacity in that muscle that he had, and he didn't want to waste it on that. Unfortunately, at that time, according to Slate's Daniel Eggenberg, who at this time was reporting on a study about to be released in the journal Perspectives on Psychology Science, found in a test with more than 2,000 participants across nearly 20 labs, a, quote, zero effect for ego depletion. No sign that human will works as it has been described or that these hundreds of studies amount to very much at all. This is the concept that was deciding things like you don't have any free will because it's all just chemicals in your brain and it's a muscle that has to be exercised. How could hundreds of peer-reviewed studies possibly be so wrong? Well, there may be a way to explain it and I really like this line in the article and it's shaking researchers to their course. Every time scientists conduct an experiment, there's a chance they'll find a false positive. True. But here's the scary part. What psychologists realize, remember this is from 2016, what psychologists now realize are now realizing their institutions are structured so that it's more likely that false positives will make it through to publication than inconclusive results. Quote, we're now learning that there is so much bias in the published literature that the meta-analysis can't be trusted. Uh, Simonine Virez, a professor of psychology and editor-in-chief of the journal Social Psychology and Personality Science, told the author. Let me read that again. We are now learning that there's so much bias in the published literature that the meta-analysis cannot be trusted. What's a meta-analysis? Sorry, I geek out on this stuff. This is the kind of stuff I listen to like five-hour podcasts on because I think it's interesting. What's a meta-analysis? It's a study of studies. It's where I go to the peer-reviewed published articles, assume them to be unbiased and truthful as my ground zero, and do an analysis of all their findings across a huge body and claim my analysis is even better because I based it on all of this other analysis. But do you hear what they're admitting? There's so much bias in that that those meta-analyses are worthless. This has led to a painful period of introspection for, introspection for psychology, leaving researchers bewildered, even scared. What if more fundamental research findings, findings that have spurred books, self-help guides, and countless articles, don't hold up to scrutiny? Does psychology lose its validity as a science? A gentleman I'm going to call Michael, because I will do nothing but butcher his last name, who's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto, is a co-author of this forthcoming paper, and he didn't really want to get into the details yet because it hadn't been published. However, the result won't spell the absolute death for ego depletion theory. Quote, there would need to be a few more of the massive replication failures to support a claim like that, he said. But beyond the demise for this theory, what this gentleman stated is that these results represent something greater and sadder. He's worked on ego depletion for almost a decade. His studies have been published in top journals. Quote from him, 
I'm in a dark place, he wrote in a recent blog post back then. Remember, this is seven years ago. Have I been chasing puffs of smoke for all these years? The fact that he even wrote that and admitted it, I give the man much credit for. That he's willing to question what he's been doing. There's lots of people who have just become more and more dogmatic. We're going to see a couple of them in a minute from Harvard. And and dug in. But he's willing to at least question. I will give him credit that it sounds like he's at least trying to do real science and go, Wayne, I think I might have been wrong. I need to correct this. It's not just ego depletion. In recent years, psychologists have been forced to re-examine many of the discipline's most famous and influential findings. Over the past decade, studies started to trickle into the literature, about uh, 2010, by the way, suggesting that major discoveries in psychology may be the result of experimenter bias. You know what that means, right? Experimenter bias. They found what they wanted to find. That's what experimenter bias is. In one paper, psychologists showed that the standard statistical practice that could be used to make just about any effect appear significant. They've shown that the very models they use, this considered accepted practice, and this is how you should do it, you can tweak it to come up with about any effect you want. Look no further for proof that when the journal of personality and social science and social psychology published a result finding people were capable of precognition which most scientists would claim is impossible precognition they claimed they found people who could tell the future that's what precognition is Then it became apparent that these problems weren't just on the fringes of the science, but had infected some of the field's most celebrated findings. In 2012, social priming, an influential theory that explains how subliminal cues influence our behavior. This is part of that whole, you don't have any real willpower, it's all everything around you thing. All right? The theory became popular after a, became popular after a 1996 experiment showed a surprising effect. Participants who completed a word puzzle filled with phrases related to the elderly actually started to behave differently. Researchers recorded them walking more slowly to an exit after the quiz. Like ego depletion, the priming experiment inspired many offshoots. One popular test showed that when a person holds a cold drink during a conversation, he or she can perceive the other person as having a chillier personality. Another test found that if interviewers carry a heavy clipboard while talking to a job candidate, they think the candidate is more serious. These conclusions are the type that make one marvel at the mystery and complexity of the human brain. And I, I, I know over the years, I've seen lots of articles like this that I've read where somebody has one of these studies and they go pull that out and then it gets written in the quasi-news, right? That was my news feed that had all these things that we were talking about when we started, right? And it gets passed off as news or fact and it's just one study. And guess what? Most of those have incredibly tiny samples. They don't even pass the proper p-test for statistical significance and they get put out there in the real world. The author even admits that it was studies like this that's what led him to major in psychology before he ended up with a career in journalism. So social priming theory isn't necessarily wrong, but when researchers failed to replicate the slow walking result with more than a double number of participants, right? So they made the, the test twice as big with more people. They couldn't replicate what was going on. They started to cast doubt on the conclusions and psychology's ability to readily test for them, especially concerning, I love this part, especially concerning was that in the replication test, experimenters only found the result, participants walking more slowly, when they were told that was the probable outcome. 
right? Psychologists will often use the claim, well, you can't do double-blind studies when you're dealing with people and you're trying to tease out things like emotions that you can't measure for, like you can in medicine where nobody knows if they're getting the right medicine or pill or whatever it might be. Um, Right, but that doesn't mean you can't just ignore it because here we have a perfect example of somebody finding exactly what they were looking for. So this article was written in 2017, came out in May. In 2015, in that August, a group of psychologists called the Open Science Collaboration uh, published a report in Science, a peer-reviewed journal, which means we have to trust it, with evidence of a huge overarching problem. When 270 psychologists tried to replicate 100 experiments published in top journals, only around 40% of the studies held up. The remaining either failed or yielded inconclusive data. What's more, the replications showed weaker effects even in the ones that replicated by about half. And this test was actually, um, I was at this one or another one that was done later we're going to talk about. They actually made them a little bit more rigorous and got the original. There's been a number of these that have been done where they'll take a bunch of these and try to replicate them. Um, we're going to talk about one if we have time at the end where they actually went back to the original study group and the original authors and said, hey, do you agree with the way we're doing this? They said, yeah. Then they had even intentionally tried to make it a more stringent, more rigorous test. And they said, oh yeah, if we could have done it at the time, that's what we would have done. That's, that, that's even better. Same problem. So here's the problem. There's a publication bias. The basic idea here is that journals tend to accept papers that find a positive conclusion. Right? If you're, if you're editing a journal, why would I publish an article that's inconclusive? Because my, my thought is, well, nobody wants to read that. It's inconclusive. That's not science, though. Then there's p-hacking. All right? So... An array of statistical techniques scientists can use to make the results appear more significant than they actually are. So a p-value is a test of statistical significance. I promise I won't make the stats class any worse than that. For example, researchers can stop collecting data when the results reach statistical significance. Right? So as soon as I get enough that I can claim I have statistical significance, I'll stop collecting data. Well, that means there's a lot of random chance and hoping everything's really nice and random and distributed in that sample I have so far. What happens if I go collect twice that many? That would be like flipping a coin, getting three heads in a row, and then concluding that coin flips always yield heads. In a 2012 survey of 2,000 psychologists, they found that these tactics were commonplace, 50% admitted to only reporting studies that panned out, ignoring data that was inconclusive. Around 20% admitted to stopping data collection after they got the result they were hoping for. Most of the respondents thought their actions were defensible. And I can hear it right now. Budgets are tight. Why would we keep spending money? We've already found what we hope to prove. Why would we keep wasting money? I guarantee you that's how it went. Somewhere in some academic hall of some department. Look, if we stop now, look at all the money we can save and use for this other guy's research. I'm being benevolent. This is a good thing. We found what we... It's statistically significant. And also, it's pretty clear that researchers were succumbing to what's known as confirmation bias, right? Our tendency to see the world as we predict it will be. This is the same thing that they will accuse Christians of, right? You've already decided, therefore, that's the only way you see it. 
well, yeah, humans have biases. They're just ignoring theirs. They're doing what they claim we do. So a lot of these p-hacks lead to a problem of underpowered studies, right? So basically, this just means the sample sizes are too small to really be reliable or possibly go pull this out into anything else. So, I mean, think about it. These are done at universities. So I'm going to go take a subset of college students. I'm going to get 50 of them to come in. I remember doing these. When I was at Alabama in the School of Communication to get a degree, you had to participate in three or four studies a year being done by some graduate student in the School of Communication because they needed bodies to go test stuff on. And they were testing some communication theory. So you'd go sit in some room and look at their ad or whatever and give them their impressions, right? But a small group in the School of Communications at the University of Alabama of 50 students is hardly extrapolable to humankind as a whole. Here's another fun one. A bit ironically, one victim of the underpowered studies might be the mega popular theory of power poses. That's why I'm standing up here like this. It's my power pose, Keith. I know you're Superman. In 2010, an experiment with only 42 participants found evidence that people could make, could be made to feel more powerful if they posed with an open, expansive posture. The theory inspired a TED Talk that has been viewed more than 32 million times. I've seen it myself. I laughed when I read this. I'm like, I've seen that. I'm one of those 32 million. It's an appealing, digestible idea. One little weird trick to feel more powerful. Unfortunately... Like ego depletion and social priming, power opposing effects have failed to replicate with larger subject pools. And just to be clear, I'm not talking that the subject doesn't feel slightly more powerful or, or in a better position. The problem is the original paper was proved that there or was, was claiming that there were hormonal and behavioral changes. And that's what made the original paper a blockbuster. It was a claim that it was actually affecting the chemistry of the brain by standing like that. Yeah, not so. So, in talking about some of these defenses and stuff, um, Sanjay Stervansava, psychologist at the University of Oregon, you know, he made the statement, we never want to be at a point where, a single stud- where, where every single study, everyone has to have five direct replications run. That was his argument. I don't know that I necessarily disagree with that, but could we at least do that for the ones that we're going to base social policy for the entire country on? Or that we're going to start massive movements around the world that we're going to export out of our universities to other places and claim this is how all humans need to behave or act? One thing scientists are learning is that studies with higher statistical power, right, which largely is a function of sample size, are more likely to reproduce. So if I go out and I see another study and nobody's run a replication, I can have more trust in the study if it has higher power. Well, that's true. That makes sense. That also seems like maybe we should use that as a selection criteria, what we're going to put in journals and what we're not going to put in journals and claim as peer-reviewed gospel. Science that yielded highly significant results are more likely to reproduce than those that just barely showed significance. And a direct one-to-one effect is way more likely to be reproducible than common or than complicated interactions. And I mean, to be clear, they go to a lot of defense here, and I'll give them, you know, their props. Just because a study fails to replicate doesn't mean the original study was wrong. 
Um, it could be that the new experiment didn't precisely recreate the conditions of the first, but then that raises a whole other question. Should experiments be so sensitive that they fail with only very small adjustments? Right? That also is an important finding, is if it has to be so perfectly exact and just like this, because then whatever it is I'm finding and claiming may not carry into quite as broad an application as people often try to make it. Quote, replication is often more complicated in psychology than in other sciences because we tend to study things that are not always directly observable. Uh, Ingrid Haas, a professor of psychology and political science, wrote to the author in an email. Behaviors like love, friendship, bravery, and trust often have to be coaxed out of psychology experiment participants through role-playing. Those scenarios are extremely sensitive to changes in culture and context and are difficult to recreate. I'll be honest, that's starting to sound a little bit like an excuse but they're at least still acknowledging that there's a problem. Okay, great, then let's put an extra caveat on, hey, we found this, but you know these things are really hard to measure, rather than, look what we found. I think psychology has a lot of potential, Veris says, and I think we are improving it as a tool to answer really important questions, but I'm not sure we have a lot of answers yet. That's the psychologist we were talking about before. That's also the editor of a journal. Admitting, hey, this is a powerful tool, but I'm not sure we have a lot of answers yet. Going on, she isn't the only one who thinks like this. Um, The author heard the same line from a lot of psychologists and scientists that don't want the public's trust just because they wear lab coats. They want to earn it. I gave me a little hope that at least there's somebody out there trying to be honest about it. Although, they didn't really seem to be saying anything like that until all of a sudden they were getting caught and the studies contradicting all this were exposed. But There was one group, just to be fair, that completely opposed all these replication studies. Um, it was a couple gentlemen out of Harvard, led by a guy named Gilbert. Um, I spared you most of his ramblings, but I think I can sum up his opinion with this one. Quote, The average person cannot evaluate a scientific finding for themselves any more easily then they can represent themselves in court or perform surgery on their own appendix. That's what he wrote the author and what he thought of all these replication studies. Which I really think is kind of dodging the question. To me, that's more addressing the question of pop culture and lifestyle writers looking at psychology and trying to write articles to a general audience based on perhaps improper understandings of the work or its potential application, you know, as a result to try to find an audience. It doesn't really affect the fact that they didn't replicate. He's saying you shouldn't be interpreting these. You're not smart enough, Stephen, sorry. I don't know about you, but if you find yourself in a court of law, one, yes, you need a lawyer, and you better understand what he's saying and what's going on. So to, to, to kind of imply that you simply just get a lawyer and forget about it and don't pay any attention to it anymore, I think is a bit naive on his part. And, um, I'm glad I didn't have to do it when I had my own issues, but there's been plenty of people that have been forced to do their own appendix surgery. I can think of at least three cases in history. Nobody does it because they want to, but she also probably kind of understand what's going on if somebody says they're going to cut into you. The biggest chain Nosek and his like-minded colleagues are calling for is what's called pre-registration of study designs. And I think this is an awesome idea. It makes all kinds of sense. I go to the journal I plan on publishing in, and I pre-register with them. Here's my study. Here's how designed. Here I, here's how I plan on doing it. 
And here's what that buys you. It makes them decide how they're going to analyze their data before they start. Because a lot of this manipulating with the data happens after the fact to go find what they want. Oh, maybe I didn't look at it right. Maybe I didn't look at it this way. So I'll just tweak the way I do the analysis until I find what I want. Oh, you know what? I, I probably didn't control for this one factor enough, so now I'm going to control for that one a little more until I get the answer I want. So by registering, you can get rid of a lot of these p-hacks and biases mentioned above. Pre-registration reduces my flexibility as a research to conduct many of the analysis um, and studies and report only a subset that happens to fit my preconceived view of what should occur. Um, NOSEC explained. Registration will make it harder for scientists to cherry-pick data and make them look good. It also will make it easier for the labs to repl- other labs to replicate the test results. To me, that should be as big a deal as peer-reviewed. They pre-registered before they started. They said what the, how they were going to do it before they began. I don't know about you. I kind of thought that's what people did already when they designed the experiment. Apparently, in psychology, not so much. Generally, I'm a pessimist. Barbara Spellman, who's a former editor of Perspectives and, Psych- and Psychological Science, told the author... But I do think ultimately after the ugliness is over, and I don't expect this to end for a while, that science will end up being better. So, I mean, here's my point. Any good science should always be looked at and evaluated for its methods, the statistics, but in the bigger sense, it's, it's the institutions that are having problems here and the way they think about evidence. Um, it's also important to remember that replication issues aren't limited to psychology. Biology and medicine has gone through similar trials. Um, Psychology has the privilege of being a very popular science for a a more general audience. Um, And the conclusions are easier to fit into our, I like this quote, boring everyday lives. Um, It's also a relatively young science. I'll read you this part because I thought it was him trying to weasel out again. But it's not a bad point, considering how much people try to lean at the science about social issues. Um, Freud's supposedly spearheading work is barely 100 years old. And nowadays, most of that's not considered science, it's considered literature. So, what will we know in a century? This is a quote straight from the article. What will we know in a century that will make our current knowledge look quaint? By all means, let's take the study from 10 years ago and redesign society around it. The truest thing written about psychology's crisis was in the conclusion of an August report of the August report in science, remember this is back in 2015. Humans desire certainty, and science frequently provides it. It stated, as much as we might wish it to be otherwise, a single study almost never provides definitive solutions or for or against an effect or its explanation. I'm pretty sure I've spent most of the last almost three years being told I need to follow the science. And every time a new study comes out, being beat over the head with it. You want to look for converging lines of evidence across multiple studies that's finding um, more convincing as it goes on, not just a single finding. When those experiments are replicated, both exactly and in new context, that's even better. The thing you want to avoid is you just found a whole bunch of patterns you can heap together into a story. All the lines of evidence have to stand the test of replication. So that was my little uh, segue over to the older, older article. Because what happens is basically a couple years later, the reckoning's still going on. And 
there was um, a study that, that one back in August I mentioned in 2015 that was looking at, I think it was 100 different studies. There's another one that's done a couple years later that looked at 21 studies. Um, some of the most, and it looked only at stuff that was in the most prestigious science journals, Nature and Science. Some of the retested studies have been widely influential in science and pop culture, like a 2011 paper on whether access to search engines hinders our memories or whether reading books can improve a child's theory of mind, basically their ability to understand that other people don't think like they do. And on Monday, they're publishing, their, their, back then, this is in 2018, they published their results in the junior, uh, journal Nature, um, Human Behavior. And their take-home lesson was this. Even studies that are published in the top journals should be taken with a grain of salt until they are replicated. Their initial findings, not ironclad truth. And they should be really hard... And, and they can be really hard to replicate for a variety of reasons. The scientists who ran the 21 replica- replication tests didn't just repeat the original experiments, they made them more rigorous, and in some cases they increased the number of participants by a factor of five and pre-registered their study and analysis designs before a single participant was brought in the lab. All the original authors except one group who couldn't be reached signed off on the study designs too, pre-registering Um, is like a promissory note that you're not going to bias the results when you get to the end. So here are the results. 13 of the 21 replicated, but perhaps just as notable, even among those studies that did pass, the effect size was half of what had been reported in the earlier ones. So at a bare minimum, the scientists were exaggerating what they had found, intentional or not. Overall, our study shows statistical significant, significant scientific findings should be interpreted rather cautiously until they have been replicated, even if they have been published in the most renowned journals. Again, we've talked about the fact that there's a lot of reasons that something may not, may not replicate. It could be simply a false positive. Um, I thought this was a funny story. One of the experiments that didn't replicate was from the University of Kentucky psychologist Will Gervais. And the experiment tried to see if getting people to think more rationally would make them less willing to report a religious belief. Because, you know, you can't be rational and have faith. Those are a dichotomy that we can't allow to ever cross. It's almost that divine footstep in the door. This is what the author says about that study now. In hindsight, our study was outright silly, Gervais says. They had people look at pictures of Rodin's The Thinker or another statue. They thought the thinker would nudge people to think harder. Then we asked them a single question on whether they believed in God. It was a really tiny sample size and barely significant. I'd like to think it wouldn't get published today. That's what the author said. Oh, and by the way, that study was published in Science, which is considered one of the top journals. Finding out why a study didn't replicate is hard work, but it's exactly the type of work in thinking that scientists are supposed to be engaged in. That's kind of the whole point of science. And I really find it interesting all these biases where only the good results are ever seen. Because you can learn just as much by going, hey, that didn't pan out. This was our theory. Hey, that didn't work. Sometimes, hey, that didn't work, but I expected it to, is almost more interesting. Jim Collins, I'm a big Jim Collins fan. He's kind of a polymath that studies businesses. And um, 
he has an interesting section in one of his books, I think it was in Good to Great, where they kind of expected things to show up, but they didn't, right? They admitted there were things that, you know, the popular press stuff that when they did this big analysis of all these companies, they expected to show up in the literature and they didn't. They call them got dogs that did not bark after the Sherlock Holmes tale with how they knew who the guy was because the dog didn't bark at him in the alley. For instance, the whole replication test issue. Um, recently, the Sergeant wrote about a replication test for the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test is basically they take a bunch of kids, they say, hey, you can have this marshmallow now, but if you wait until 20 minutes from now, I'll let you have five marshmallows or something like that, right? The whole idea is delayed gratification. Am I willing to delay gratification now for something better in the future? And then they try to use that to predict by looking at kids when they're young and then when they get older, success, Right? Well, it turns out there was a study about the marshmallow test. Oh, that's it. Delayed gratification. You can test kindergartners and tell if they're going to be successful or not by whether or not they possess the ability to, uh, to exercise delayed gratification. turns out you take that same study and control for other factors like, I don't know, maybe the home or environment these kids were brought up in, and all of a sudden that finding became zilch. I've read, I've seen lots of stuff about the marshmallow test over the years. Funny how, until I read this article, I've never heard anybody go, oh, you know, that's been completely debunked. All you have to do is control for environment, and that goes away entirely. In science, too often, the first demonstration of an idea becomes the lasting one. Replications are a reminder that in science, this is, this is not supposed to be the case. Science ought to embrace and learn from the failures. The replication crisis in psychology, as it's often called, started again, like I said, around 2012, Um, when a paper using completely accepted experimental methods was published reporting to find evidence that people were capable of perceiving the future, which, as far as we know, is impossible. This prompted a reckoning. Basically, it was this paper getting published in a prestigious journal that finally made a bunch of psychologists sit around and go, huh? Something right. The Shakespearean version of that would be something is truly rotten in the state of Denmark here. Scientists thought if you could find an effect in a small number of people, that effect must be robust, but often significant results from small samples turn out to be statistical flukes. All right. Another thing that stands out is that many of the papers that failed to replicate sound a little too good to be true. In 2010, a paper um, that found simply washing hands negates a common human hindsight bias. When we make a tough choice, we often look back on that choice we passed on unfavorably and are biased to find reasons to justify our decision, right? So looking back, we come up with more reasons to say, yeah, yeah, that was a bad choice. There's reasons I didn't take that. The washing hands in an experiment seems to be more generally uh, remove those past concerns resulting in a metaphorical clean slate effect, the study abstract stated. It all sounds a little too easy and too simple, and guess what? It didn't replicate. They could never make it work again, other than this one sample run by this one group. So let's end here. Those are from a while back. Let's go to May of last year, about a year ago now. A new replication crisis that is less likely to be true is cited more. So this actually came out of the University of California, San Diego. Um, I got this off their website. I have all these articles, by the way. If you really want them, I'll email them to you. I pulled them off websites. You can go read them. You've you've heard far more of them than you probably want to know. Um, But I thought this was interesting. P. 
Papers in leading psychology, economic, and science journals that fail to replicate and therefore are less likely to be true are often the most cited papers in academic research, according to a new study by the University of California, San Diego's Ratty School of Management. Social sciences and medicine don't hold up when other researchers try to repeat the experiments. That's, that's the whole replication crisis. The unreliable research tends to be cited as if the result were true long after the publication failed to replicate. We also know that experts can predict well which papers were replicated. That's the crazy part. Since then, we figured out how to look at a paper and tell whether or not it's going to replicate with pretty good accuracy. But we're still not using that as selection criteria at most science journals. And we're still publishing those papers anyway. And people are still citing them without applying those same viewpoints to go, should I really be citing this as a good basis? So, one thing I didn't like about this article was their link behind these. They keep citing that the unsuccessful ones were cited 153 times more than those that failed. Here's my problem with that. They never give me a ratio. How big was your sample size? How many citations did you have to begin with? What was the average number of citations? What does 153 mean? It sounds impressive, but 153 out of 100,000 citations is kind of small. 153 out of 20 citations is ridiculous. Right? So, even this article, I'm like, well, you said something, but I guess I have to go read the whole paper to, to find out the rest of it. Interesting or appealing findings are also covered by more media and shared on more platforms like Twitter generating a lot of attention, but that does not make them true. Sorry, fact checkers. Y'all were in full force when this article was written and when this study was done. In psychology, only 39% of the 100 experiments successfully replicated. In economics, 61% of the 18 studies replicated, as did 62% of the 21 studies published in Nature Science that they looked at. With these findings from three replication projects, the authors used Google Scholar after the replication project. They used Google Scholar to test whether papers that failed to replicate are cited significantly more than those that were successfully replicated. Both before and after the replication projects were published, the largest gap was in papers published in Science and Nature. Non-replicable papers were cited 300 times more than the replicatable ones. I want to start with one last example and why this is so important. I know we're out of time, but I want you to hear this one because I still hear this debate today. The influence of an inaccurate paper published in a prestigious journal can have repercussions for decades. For example, the study Andrew Wakefield published in The Lancet in 1998 turned tens of thousands of parents around the world against measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine because of an implied link between the vaccine and autism. The incorrect findings were redacted by the Lancet in 2012 uh, and 12 years later, but that claim is still made today. If you go look at the details of that study and what this guy was doing to young kids in a hospital that he was pre-screening to find what he wanted and the lawyer he was working with who had already concocted the lawsuit they were bringing against the National Health Service in Britain to prove this link before they ever started looking for kids to try to prove it, you'll feel like an idiot if you ever even listen to the theory. You never hear that part in the media. My point is this. I get it. Trust the science. Questioning science is still science. It's okay to say, has that been replicated? How big was that study? Well, you're not a scientist. What do you know? I know that there's a lot of stuff that gets published that's trash. I'm allowed to question. Thanks. I'm way over time. So. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address 
to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.